0: If you have your Bibles, our Old Testament reading is going to be from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 24 through chapter 45, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. And we're just going to read verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. And our sermon passage from today comes from the book of Ezra, We're going to read chapter 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem in place in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought out these in the charge of Midriath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheswar, the prince of Judah." And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. And all of these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from the Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is such a privilege. First off, I know we all can't wait for James to be in the pulpit. I'm with you. I'm on your side of this one. I can't wait till he's in the pulpit too for so many different reasons. Can't wait. But you're stuck with me for the next month. So I'm so sorry. I don't know how else to say it to you, just where we are. Now, what a privilege it is for me though, because I got to be the one who started this whole season. I got to be the one after John left to say, now what? And now it's a privilege to get to end this season and to basically say, now what? Kind of the same thing, the same message in a different way. And some of it's because 2020 has been so bizarre. I'm not telling you something you don't already know, but there's so much that's happened that it's like these big stories and things that we've completely forgotten about. Who remembers that there were like wildfires in Australia? That happened, murder hornets, anybody remember those things? Those happened, that was real. There was an impeachment trial. Don't remember if you remember that or not. That happened as well. We've had murders. We've had riots. We've had protests. We've had this crazy season of the world where we had to look at the world in a new way. Oh, yeah. And we also had a pandemic. This This year has not turned out how any of us assumed it would. Nobody had this in their mind. Nobody had this in their day timer planned out for, man, I'm going to really enjoy these things. We had no clue. And as we find ourselves going back towards some semblance of normalcy, please understand me. I'm not saying we're going back into real life and normal life again, but as school gets ready to start up, there's some sense of normalcy that is beginning to exist. How do we enter back into it? How do we as God's people walk back in? We have spent this season and this time mourning what has been lost, and we should. Trying to figure out how do we love our neighbors well, and we should. Trying to figure out what God is up to and all of it. What's the story he's trying to to weave for us? What are the things we're trying to make sure we don't miss out on? And now we're like, what, what should be different? What should be changed? How do we go back? And the question for us is, does the Bible help us with that? Is there anything in here that would give us some idea of how do we go back into a normal life? And so this month, we're going to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because it's a beautiful picture of God's people who had been through a very difficult thing and then were coming back into some sense of a normal life. But instead of five months of pandemic, it was 70 years of exile taken far from home and we see them coming back and what is it for them to see what are they going to learn how do they endure and how does it help us as we enter back into some sense of normal life so i'm very excited for us to look at this i think to understand it though we've got to understand a little history on the front end okay so the book of ezra and nehemiah combined together are actually a fulfillment of scripture we read it as part of our old testament passage from isaiah chapter 44 i think verse 28 I think they're going to put it up on the screen for us. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Ezra and Nehemiah are the beginnings of people coming back and building the temple and then building back up the wall around Jerusalem. That's what we're going to see in these next weeks. And here's a short timeline. I think it's easy for us to miss, or at least it is for me. I put things together in the Bible that don't belong together. I think Ezra and Nehemiah, contemporaries, same time. They just did this at the, you know, there's actually a big change in this. There's a hundred years between the beginning of this book until the end of this book. Eighty years before Ezra even comes on the scene in the book of Ezra, which I find funny. But you see here, we had the first exiles taken, captain in 605. We got the temple destroyed in 586 and all of Judah is exiled. Cyrus becomes the king of Persia in 559, he conquers Babylon in 539, and then 538 is the decree we read this morning. And that's the first return of exiles. We hear return of exiles and we think it's one event when it's actually three. There are three times when the exiles come back and something different happens every time. So the first one, they come back and they're going to work on the temple. We'll talk about that for the next couple of weeks. And then 80 years later, Ezra comes. Teaches the people the word. We'll look at that. And then after that, another you know, 15 years and the Nehemiah comes with a third round of exiles. And why that matters and why is that so important is because if we don't understand the context of these books, it won't make sense to us. It won't make any sense. Now, for the kids that are out there, you know, I love to give you guys some thoughts some things to think about because we think it's so important for you to understand the preaching of God's word. And this is not easy. I know you guys get bored. You look at me and you're counting how many steps I take to one side to the other side or how this like the light shines off my head or whatever, whatever you're doing with that. That's fine, too but we think it's important for you to understand the reading of God's word and the preaching of God's word. So we want to make it accessible. So I got some questions for you because it will also help you as you get ready for the S-C-H-O-O-L word that I'm not going to say that's coming in a few weeks. Here's the first one. What does sovereignty mean? It's a big word, big word we're going to talk about, but it's important for you to know it. How does God work through Cyrus and how does God provide for his people? want those three questions to be kind of working through your mind as you're listening to the sermon. And then at lunch today, you can ask your parents these questions and y'all can talk about it. How awesome is that? So that's where we are. That's where we're going for today. And I think that's where we want to head and lean into. So the important part of all of this for us is to understand the theme of this part of the story is God's sovereignty. It's a word we throw around. It's a word we use sometimes and sometimes don't really understand and know what it means. But it's very interesting that the beginning of Ezra, as they're getting ready to come back to the promised land, the first story we get is a reminder of his sovereignty. Is this picture of God's control. Here's a definition for you. God's sovereignty is supreme power over creation so that nothing happens in the universe outside of its influence and authority according to his plan and intention. Simply put, God's in control. Because here's the deal. If we don't grasp this, understand this, the rest of what we're going to be looking at and thinking about doesn't matter. If we think, the, if they thought the exile and we think the pandemic was this arbitrary event that God just kind of threw out there and said, we'll see what happens. If there's not a sense of plan and purpose and control, we have much bigger issues to deal with. Because God is the supreme power. He is in control. That's why he's God. So the word Lord means when we say he is Lord, it's that he's perfectly in charge of all creation. Now here's where we have trouble, and you're going to hear this from people who don't, are not really sure about Jesus. Not really sure about God well, if he's sovereign, then how can he be good because all these bad things happen in the world? We've all heard that argument before. There's bad in the world. So how in the world can God be good if he's sovereign? Let me say two things. One, we can't just take one aspect of God out of all the other aspects of God. You don't just get to take his sovereignty and miss out on all the other parts of him. Like his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his justice, they all fit together to give us a clear picture of who God is. If you only get one picture of any, if you only look at Andrew's impatience, you're going to think one thing about me, and probably should. But hopefully there's other good things that counterbalance that, like my eating eating habits is a bad choice. Other things that I do, and those are good things that I do that will counterbalance to see a full picture of who I am. Same with God. If our focus is solely on his sovereignty and we look at the negative and bad things in the world, we've got a problem. But if we see that he is good and we remember that he is gracious and that he is loving, it fits together. But the other part is that we're told that God is not the author of evil. He does not make evil happen. He can't because he's light, which we've talked about this morning, because he's perfect, because he's holy, because he's good. But he does allow for the hard things of this world. And for those that struggle with that, it's like, well, gosh, how could he let this person die? Or how could, could he let a pandemic happen? Because of that, I won't believe in him. I'm saying that's all the reason why I do believe in him. Because he makes those things purposeful. He makes those things make sense. He makes those things have a reason. If not, then everything is just haphazard and thrown together. And so in a pandemic means nothing. And it could happen to us at any time, at any point, with no regard or care for who we are. We have a God who's in control and uses all things. The verse in Romans that we miss here all the time God works in all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We hear it, God does all good things. He does not, but he turns all things for good. He uses the hard and difficult things in your life and in my life, and he turns them to good. He redeems them. The worst parts of our life he redeems to make into something beautiful. That's where his sovereignty comes in. That's where our encouragement of that comes in. He's got a plan for it. He's not surprised by murder hornets or pandemics or anything else that happens. And he takes them and he weaves them into a beautiful tapestry of your life because it was part of his plan all along. So we need to look at his sovereignty through three things quickly this morning. Number one, through the exile which we're not, we're hearing the back end of this, but if we don't understand God's sovereignty in the exile, again, we're going to miss this. Through those in power and for his people. So first through the exile, quick overview of the Old Testament, as you well know and remember, God was at work for his people from the very beginning, created a place for them, a perfect place for them, created all of the earth for Adam and Eve, perfectly suited for them gives them one rule and ways to love and care for them and to protect them. And of course, they disobey the one rule. And what does God do? He still makes coverings for them and he lets them leave with a promise that there will be a savior. There'll be a Messiah. There'll be one who'll crush the enemy. And then throughout scripture, from that point on, God continues to give promises to his people, promises that they will be his people, promises of a place that is to come. But he also warns them, He says, when you go into the promised land, you need to devote to destruction and drive the people out, because if not, their gods will be a snare for you. And sure enough, when they don't obey, it's exactly what happens. And then for hundreds of years, God is gracious and faithful, and He says to them, Don't follow those gods, follow me. Return to me, and I will return to you. And they continually disobey, and they constantly go after gods of the world, they constantly sin to the point where God says, You're going to go to exile. If you continue on this path, you will go into exile. And after warning, after warning, after warning, they continue to disobey. And then God shows them the picture of his justice and the penalty for sin, and they are sent to exile. And don't get me wrong, he didn't allow exile. He orchestrated exile. He's the one who moved in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to go and to conquer and to bring the people back. And yet God was at work In the exile because what he was after was the hearts of his people he wanted them to remember who he is they wanted to remember that they're not in charge they're not in control to remember that there is a holiness that's expected of God's people so while they're in exile do you know what God does he protects his covenant community they don't get wiped off the earth they don't get destroyed by some like, you know, nation and power that comes in and kills them all. They're brought to a place. And they live there. They integrate into there. They find joy and happiness and families and such there. But even as God is pulling them into exile, he's giving them a promise. This is not the end of the story for you. I will bring you home. In 70 years, I will bring—he gives them a date— 70 years, I'm going to bring you home. When the exile has done its purpose, and at this point, the 70 years is up and the exile has accomplished the purpose that God set out for it. He now has a humbled people. He now has a people who have seen God's grace and mercy in the midst of them. He wasn't just at work for the covenant community. If you read the book of Daniel, you see these amazing things that God does through Daniel, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the point where the... Nebuchadnezzar says there is only one God in the entire universe, and he's the God of the Hebrews. To all the people of Babylon, the word of God was spreading. They weren't spreading it at home, so he sends them into exile and says, well, we're going to spread it there. And they see God's faithfulness without a temple and without a land, and that God was still at work. So at the end of this thing, they come back, without the illusion of control anymore, that God loves them, cares for them, has protected them and has a purpose for them. Most of the people I've talked to during this season and time of the pandemic have had one common theme. I know for certain I'm not in control anymore. I thought I was in control. I thought I planned my days. I thought I planned all these things out. But when I've seen, you know, my wedding didn't happen or I couldn't have a funeral or I couldn't go to work, or our kids didn't go to school, or we didn't really have a graduation, or we didn't have a prom. All these things that have happened, all that we have lost, have reminded us of one important thing. God is the one in control, not us. And he uses all the difficult and hard things. Because for every negative conversation people give me about the pandemic, like, I've never spent so much time with my family before. It's made me recalibrate how I look at my job. I was a workaholic, and I didn't even know it. We sit down as a family and have meals. It's beautiful. It's made me get to know my neighbors who I never knew before. It's given me a heart and compassion for other people. As God used the exile through his people for all of Babylon, God is using the pandemic through his people to love and to show truth. God used even the thing that you thought would completely demoralize them. They're no longer his people. They're integrated into another people. They no longer have a land. They no longer have their temple. And yet God was faithful. And at 70 years, he begins to bring them out. The second thing is through the powers, through the powers of the people at this time. There's this idea of conquest. I want us to read from Isaiah from our Old Testament passage, two things who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying, Jerusalem shall be built, and the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grass, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. 539 BC, the, the superpower of the east is Persia, and it was the most unlikely story there could be. Fifteen years before that, Cyrus was a vassal, just a person kind of in the court, of a junior ally of Babylon. Babylon was the big dog on the porch. They were the ones who were in charge of everything. No one thought anything of Persia. Cyrus becomes the king of Persia, and then all of a sudden, Persia grows in power, grows in strength, to the point that they end up taking over Babylon and are now the superpower. And it's one of those amazing stories that if you you almost wouldn't believe it if you didn't know it's true. And it shows us something so interesting because we think God's not involved in the day-to-day stuff a lot of the times, don't we? He's too busy. He doesn't really care. This prophecy was 175 years before Cyrus did his proclamation. And there's times in the Bible where prophecy is said and we see a fulfillment like, yeah, I can see He is named in the Bible 175 years before he comes to power. Before he's born, God had already anointed Cyrus to go and conquer the world. Imagine today if I pulled out a piece of paper from 1845 that predicted the pandemic of 2020 or predicted that Donald Trump was the president, or predicted anything else that goes on in this world, if I gave that to you and said, look, it's authentic, it's from 1845, A, you would run me out of the sanctuary. Or we would be so amazed. We read it in the Bible and we just kind of like, yeah, that's pretty cool, I guess, I don't know. 175 years before it came to be, God had already orchestrated it and told his people through Isaiah, I'm going to raise up a man named Cyrus, and he is going to take over the world. I'm going to give him the hands of the kings, and then he is going to help you rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. God was in charge of all the events of the world at this time. How crazy, that beautiful picture that God had for his people, that all along the way, he knew they would go to exile, he knew where they would go, and he had a plan to give them freedom. He had a plan to give them freedom. And then he was at work through this proclamation. There's this beautiful word in the first verse that says that God stirred Cyrus. It's a word we see in the Old Testament a lot. It's something that God does with powers a lot. You'll see that with Pharaoh, you see it with Nebuchadnezzar and others. But typically when God stirs, he hardens the hearts of a power. But here he stirred Cyrus. And the word here is also translated in other places, awakens him. He opens his eyes. He gets to the heart of, he encourages Cyrus. Cyrus to make this proclamation. Now, the historian Josephus says, now again, we don't know if it's true or not. The historian Josephus says that someone showed Cyrus the, pro- the prophecy about him, and that's what made this happen. Could have been. Either way, God was at work through Cyrus that Cyrus stood up in front of the entire nation. We're not talking about just for the Jews. To all of Persia. And he has a written proclamation so that it can be distributed. And he says The God, the Lord God of heaven to what he says about God, which that is a picture of sovereignty. It's a title of ultimate power, of the Lord God, who's God of heaven. If he's God of heaven, he's God of everything. He makes that statement about God. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to free his people. And they can go and rebuild the house of the Lord. And not only that, I'm going to tell the people around you, give them stuff. Give them money. Give them what they need so they can go. God at work through a pagan potentate. This person who doesn't, he's not, his words make it sound like he's a worshiper of God. He's not. There's no place that she'll ever see that he is. He was what God, who God used for this amazing thing and this proclamation that goes to the people. And so the last thing, we see his sovereignty for his people. See his sovereignty for his people. First, the stirring. In verse 6, the exact same word he says he stirred the people. Because think about this for just a second. If they've been there for 70 years, they now have a life there. They're now settled there. Put it in contemporary days, imagine that in 1950, the United States was all exiled. And now in 2020, we're at the second and third and fourth generations for some of these people. They've built a life in what was Babylon. It's comfortable. It's easy. It's what they're familiar with. And this idea of going back and rebuilding seemed completely impossible because they didn't have the freedom or the resources. So with the proclamation that Cyrus gives, he takes away all their excuses and all their obstacles. You're not free to go. Not only that, I'm gonna make sure that people give you money on the way to go so you can do what we're called to do. That's what God does. He doesn't just provide the call, he provides the means. The call is to go rebuild. I'm gonna give you the means to do it. And in this proclamation, they hear that for the first time. But you know what? Everyone had the ability to go, but not everyone would go. so god stirred within them and in that stirring to go they had a choice to obey or not to obey will they go will they hear if he's awakened my heart to this opportunity to go will i do it realizing it's a four-month journey realizing it would be frustrating and hard realizing i have no idea what i'm about to walk into will i do it will i obey And as God often loves to do, he uses a small number. The word we hear is remnant. He says it throughout the Old Testament. I will call a remnant from my people to return. There's a remnant of God's people that we'll see in chapter 2 that we're not going to really look at. He calls them to go back. And they have to obey, whether to obey or to not obey, whether to go back or not go back. And God stirs and awakens within some of them a new vision for life, a life that's beyond the place of Babylon. But in this, it's a stirring to go back for a purpose, and it's God-centered, not them-centered. He doesn't say go back and go back and live your old life. Go back to your old house and your old land. Go back to build the house of the Lord. Because you got to remember at that time, the house of the Lord was where people would come to hear about God. The temple in the Old Testament, that's where people from other nations and other places would gather to hear the truth of who God was, and it no longer existed. So we're saying, let's rebuild that so it can again be a city on a hill, be a light for people to come and hear about God. But not only does he stir, but he gives them provision. It says the neighbors around them, we're talking Jews who've decided to stay, and their Babylonian neighbors just start giving them stuff. And it reminds us of the first exodus, doesn't it? When they leave, what happens? When Moses and the people are leaving Egypt, the Egyptian neighbors gave them earrings and gold and silver on their way out. And this is a picture of a second exodus. The first exodus was them leaving Egypt to go build the tabernacle and to establish worship. The second exodus is for them to go and leave Babylon to rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. And God gives them all that they need to go. And it's this beautiful picture of how God is even in control of all the wealth and money. Because if you think about it, the first temple or the first tabernacle was built by God's provision of plunder of Egypt. The temple was built by God's provision of plunder through David in his conquest. The temple is going to be rebuilt by God's provision of plunder from Babylon. God gave them all they needed. But he didn't just give him money to travel. didn't just give him money to build. He restored all the elements from the temple. All the worship elements. Because at that time, the way that you showed perfect conquests, you stole the things that they used for their gods, and you put them in the temples of your God. Think about the Ark of the Covenant in the Temple of Dagon. When they took the Ark, they stole and put it there, and the, the statue, if you'll remember, just keeps falling down in worship of the, of the Ark. It's that kind of picture. They've taken all the stuff out. And Israel thinks it's all lost. We've lost all this that we had in the temple. But we find that there was a careful accounting and every part of it was returned. And even that was a fulfillment of prophecy from Jeremiah 27. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. I told them this is what's gonna happen. Don't fret, don't fear, don't worry when they all get taken away because they'll come back. This is a picture of God's covenant with his people. Whatever happens to you out there, I'll bring you back. I'm gonna restore your place and I'm gonna restore your purpose just like I did these elements. Because in the end of all of this, whatever goes on, whatever happens, we need to live in the hope and the reminder of God's sovereign plan. That there is a place at the end of this. Not just the end of the pandemic, but the end of our lives. That no matter how far away this world may push us and pull us and move us, that as his people, he promises us to bring us home. To bring us home. And it's not a home like they were going back to. It wasn't a torn down Jerusalem. A home where God resides forever. And where he promises that he prepares a place for you and for me as his people. A place to be with him forever. Not because of anything we've done. But simply because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and for me the truth of the gospel that they get to feel in full measure. This chapter ends with God using this small group of people to come back as a reminder that he takes individuals and families. This wasn't some collective. All of chapter 2 gives you every individual family who went because he doesn't see us as Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church. He sees us as you, one person at a time called by him, loved by him for his purpose, and that he wants to restore and return us to where we're supposed to go. Questions for us as we think through this and process through this. There's really three things I want you to think about. What's God stirring among you, among us? As he stirred in the people, as he stirred in Cyrus? God is awakening something in us through this pandemic. Don't ignore it. Don't miss it. Don't try to cover it with other things. What is he stirring? What is he awakening? What is he moving your heart to? And for us as a church in this new chapter of our church, what's he going to call us to? And with that, what has he removed so that you may respond? They had excuses. They had obstacles, and God took them all away. This season has taken away so many things that have tried to keep us away from him. So what has God removed in your life that you may respond in a new way to him and how will you respond? And the last thing, how should life look different because of all this? We've missed something huge if we just go back to normal life. God is sovereign over your life and my life, over all creation. He's allowed all this to happen so that we might turn our face to him in a new way. How, as his people, will we do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reminder of what it is for us. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are fully in charge and in control of all, everything of our lives, everything that happens. Father, let us trust in your plan and your sovereignty this morning, we pray. Help us to seek you. Help us to take what has been such a strong and hard and difficult season And to see the ways that you're at work in it for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.